Hi, and welcome back to Apology, a podcast about books and reading. I'm Jesse Pearson, the founder and editor of Apology Magazine. After a brief hiatus, we are back with a very exciting guest, the musician, artist, and author, Cozy Fanny Tootie, of Throbbing Gristle, Chris and Cozy, Carter Tootie, and more. Starting with the performance art and music collective Coombe Transmissions from 1969 until 1976, Cozy has been a pioneer in sound and visual culture for decades. She shares responsibility for the invention of industrial music with the other members of Throbbing Gristle. She pioneered the use of pornography in fine art through posing for pictorials and performing in adult films, then making her own work from the results. She trailblazed electronic music throughout the 80s and 90s with her musical and life partner Chris Carter as Chris and Cozy and later Carter Tootie. And in 2017, she became a published author with her moving and insightful memoir, Art, Sex, Music. Now her second book has been released. It's called Resisters, that's R-E-S-I-S-T-E-R-S, and it's another essential piece of reading. It's a hybrid memoir that covers not just more of Cozy's own life, but also the lives of the English mystic Marjorie Kemp, who lived from around 1373 until around 1438, and who worshipped God probably harder than anybody else who's ever lived, and the English musician and electronic composer Delia Derbyshire, who lived from 1937 until 2001. You might know Delia best as the composer of the Doctor Who theme music, but there's so much more to her and what she did. Uh, definitely seek out her other music. In Sisters, Cozy draws parallels between herself and these two women. It's a fascinating read, and I couldn't recommend it more. So without further preamble, here's Cozy Fanny Tootie on the Apology Podcast. So what are you reading right now? I've just finished a book and I've jumped into another one. Uh, I just finished a book that's called The Five Five Women That Were Killed by Jack the Ripper in 1888. It's a very tasty subject. But um, it's um, the untold lives of the um, five women. So instead of sort of focusing on Jack the Ripper and what he did to them, it's focused on their lives and what led to them being the victims. It's basically what Victorian England was like for women, which is pretty atrocious. And um, the way that they were kind of um, portrayed as, as prostitutes or loose women of a sort. But you get to understand that some of them weren't, most of them weren't. And, and at some point, just because of the circumstances they found themselves in through poverty and yeah, unexpected poverty even, that they ended up being a victim it was fascinating looking to Victorian London, you know. But the the other one I just started reading um, came about from Marie Sister's book, actually, because a guy I mentioned in it that, that knew Delia Derbyshire, his son runs a small imprint, and he thought I might be interested in this book. And it's called Strangers, and it's by Rebecca Tamas, and it's essays on the human and non-human and it's basically a relationship with with nature, mm. but it, it's really well done. It's got folklore, history, and the present day all woven together to give you kind of, kind of sort of like to discuss what we do and what we shouldn't do with nature, basically, which is um, on point at the moment, I'd say, with the condition of the planet. But it's beautifully written. It's beautifully written, and it's, I think... When you uh, yeah you can, with a book you can you can tell how how much you love it if you think of actually buying another copy and sending it to a friend yeah 
which is what I'll do with this one, actually. Do you do that often? Uh, I do it now and again, yeah, I do, actually. It's just like certain people, when you read the book, you think, oh, so-and-so would have loved this, you know. Yeah. Or so-and-so should read this because they're into that kind of stuff. But, yeah, I do do it. What sort of um, folklore does she use in that book? She goes back to the 1600s and and after that. It goes into all the different sort of um, folklores of the time to sort of link them to now. I mean, one was like in 1649, there was um, a sort of collective commune, I suppose we'd call it now, um, called the Diggers. Mm. And um, they were like way before their time because they were like, into equality and just working with the earth. And that was equality between men and women as well. They didn't last long, but then you find out that where they tilled the land at that point, it has now become a gated community. Oh, wow. <laughs> the absolute opposite of what it started out. It's that kind of journey through, you know, what the different parts of the um, land were and become. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. It sounds great. I wonder if those digger, if those diggers were the inspiration for the diggers' name in the '60s. You know that group, the diggers from San Francisco. Yeah, possibly. I mean, there were two lots of diggers apparently, and she does make a distinction about the two. Um, one was more political, and this well, this one's true levelers and stuff like that. But this one was um, was political in its own right, I suppose, wasn't it? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. What What's your um? What's your earliest memory of reading? Oh, gosh. Well, my earliest memories as a kid, like most kids, where you, you read comics. You know? Yeah, sure. <laughs> loads of comics. And, and I remember we used to have our comics delivered every week, which was really exciting because we'd wait for them to come through the letterbox. You know, my mum and dad had had their newspapers delivered and we'd get comics. Um, a different one for me and my sister, funnily enough, so we could swap, which was quite insightful of my parents I suppose <laughs> but um other than that my mum was um a member of the library and they had a library in my infant school I don't know what kind of school they call that from five to ten years old and um they ran the library there and I used to go with her to the library and um get books out and then I moved away to another library that was away from the school I used to go on my bike and um I started getting into Greek mythology. I don't know why, because mm. I was very, very young. I didn't understand much about it. I was just fascinated by the, you know, like the magical stories. It was such fantasy. So, um, yeah, but there was another one. I remember what I would call as a, a child a real book, because mm. my mum and dad had a, a small bookcase in the living room, and there were very few books on it, but there was one called The Cruel Sea, I don't know if you know of that. I don't. It was based, yeah, it was based on um, the World War Two and the Navy at sea. And I, I, I thought, I wonder what that's about. And it looked like it was very small print and it looked very sort of academic. So I was fascinated by it because I I was just used to comics and other books, you know. And I started, I sort of opened it in the middle and started reading it. I just had, did not have a clue what it was on about. I really did not know. <laughs> And I thought, oh, they, these real books are really difficult stuff, you know. <laughs> and I put it back on the shelf. But I realised it was there because my dad was in the navy in the in the World War in World War Two, right? And it was obviously he he could sort of relate to the traumas that he was depicting. 
I mean, they did make it into a film as well. So mm. um, I suppose I must have watched it, but I didn't connect the two, you know? Yeah, yeah. That reminded me of something, which is in the book you wrote about Delia Derbyshire's um, first sound project being her own voice in reference to her losing her working class uh, Coventry accent. Yeah, yeah. I found that concept really fascinating. And um, it got me thinking about class in England and how literacy or like the love of reading differs from class to class. You know, having grown up working class, do you feel like you were encouraged to read? I I wouldn't say I was encouraged, no. It was more hands-on encouragement with my mum and dad. Mm. Because, and I think that can't, that paid off in the end. I think with, with my father, it was very practical stuff like gardening, which I still do, you know, and, and obviously the whole housewife crap that they put you through as a, as a young girl, you know, so that you'll be a mm, good wife. Mm-hmm. But they're all practical skills that are, you know, useful to me. But my mum was, um, I, did, I used to do a lot of drawing. Um, my, my grandmother on my mother's side was very um, artistic and she was, um, she was a dressmaker, but a bridal gown. So they were very intricate mm. and ornate. And my mum always used to say, you must have inherited her, her genes to be that sort of like um, artistic, you know. But I used to draw such a lot. I, and I used to make things. If I couldn't get a toy, I would try and make one. Mm. <laughs> because there were, there were just things that back then that your mum and dad wouldn't buy you, you know. So I think, oh, well, I'll make one myself yeah. then. So, um, no, I wasn't encouraged to read in that respect. I, I was talking about the library and things from when I got to high school, um, because there were history lessons and stuff like that. History I absolutely adored. Mm. And and any subject like geography where I could draw, I could draw maps and I could illustrate the history of the different kings or knights or whatever or bishops. And I used to go to the library and, and bring books out of that period and and then draw these illustrations into my history books and things and my geography book. So in that respect, they, yeah, they fueled my love of art, if anything, books. Yeah. Who were some of your, like, first favourite artists? I don't – I really don't know because – but my as a as a child, I wasn't really looking for names as so much as just looking at the image. Right, right. I see. I think I mentioned it in Art, Sex, Music. That was one. That was because um, there was um there's a house in in Hull that belonged to one a, a politician that stopped slavery, William Wilberforce, and there were loads of huge paintings in that house. That when I used to go there, I, I went there outside of school. We were taking with school for educational reasons but um I used to go outside of school as well just to go back and look at the paintings mm. you know Sebastian and and arrows and being pierced with arrows and things like that and it just absolutely fascinated me what do you remember drawing as a kid other than maps I used to draw figures a lot of figures mm. I was um, because the the comics that I used to get, they always had they're very girly comics, you know. They used to have ballerinas and stuff like that. Right. And and there was one thing once where they had Firebird, and the costume for that was just wonderful. It was literally like a ball of fire. So, <laughs> so I was I was like drawing that like crazy, you know, and coloring it in and 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 I I would just sort of draw people. Funnily enough, I was really into figures and. 
and the different because the a ballet and the way that they move the body and the positions of the arms and legs and yeah, I, I thought were just so beautiful and graceful. So I, I would draw bodies doing all these different things, mm. and that's what I was really into. And moving forward now, what were you reading as a teenager? Oh wow, not much. I was out all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was out going to gigs and stuff. Right, but um, it was. Um, I, th- I think because Tolkien was around then for most sort of hip people, you know, you, you usually had to read Lord of the Rings, but I decided that's too long. I ain't got time to do that. I'll read The Hobbit instead. Mm-hmm. So I, re- I read The Hobbit. But other than that, I w- it just wasn't on my radar reading. I was too busy trying to find freedom from the tyranny of my father and um, and getting out, to be honest. The music was a biggest thing in my life at that point the biggest thing what sort of gigs were you going to i had um well they would it was back in the early 60s when they um well festivals now are everywhere but festivals are just big 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 were just beginning and there was a, a large park in my hometown and they had free festivals and i knew a lot of the local bands so i used to go along to these festivals with them and then when they played um, outside of of Hull, where it was, I used to I used to go in the van with them to their gigs as well. When did reading come come back into your life? Was it sort of during the Coombe days? Uh, when I stopped taking drugs, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> you can't really read a lot of books when you're tripping on acid and when you no. you know stoned. No. Um, <laughs> well, you could, but I guess they'd take on a totally different meaning, wouldn't they? I remember once when I was with someone and they had a Dali book there. That, Funnily enough, there was a book when we were tripping, we are looking at Salvador Dali and his paintings. Right. And I think, I think it was Johnny Bentley who who um, who actually said, that's it, and he shut the book and he said, that bird just flew off the page, I can't take any more. <laughs> you know, so it was just like, like illustration of not reading a book when you're tripping. Right. But... Um, yeah, I suppose around about Coombe time or just shortly before, that sort of rite of passage of getting into magic and Alistair Crowley and stuff like that, and numerology, that's when I started reading stuff like that. And William Reich, you know, mm-hmm. all going energy accumulator, that kind of stuff, and getting into um, divining. Mm. So it sort of like shifted, a, you know, quite, quite, a, quite a way. I haven't actually read Crowley. Is he worth reading, do you think, today? You asked me today, I said, don't bother. Okay. <laughs> um, you kind of, I have a different opinion of him now, and um, because of things that have been revealed about the way they treated women. Right. And and my own experience of people that were into Crowley, and because I don't know if you've read Art Sex Music, but. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I was regarded as, you know, Alistair Crowley had a Scarlet Woman, and I was supposed to be the Scarlet Woman. Right. Which, yeah. So I don't, I don't really, um, I don't go in for magic and stuff like that anymore. Numerology, I'm still into because I love numbers. Mm. Absolutely love maths. How does numerology work for you now? I'm just always doing numbers in my head, and then going, going and trying. If I, if I sort of see something, I think I wonder what the significance of that would be numerologically. So then I sort of like analyze it and think. Yeah, that that's great. You know, the title of something. It can be anything, someone's name or so I I still really enjoy that. 
Yeah, that's a fascinating pursuit to me. I've never really understood it. I've tried to. Yeah, I don't know. Some people are into numbers and some aren't, you know. I, I just find it um, goes through my head all the time, numbers. <laughs> <laughs> Were there books that were passed around or shared in in the Throbbing Gristle days? What reading was important to I think you then? Information on riot control and and sound, um, mm. use of sound. That was and and Willam Reich was was part of that as well because I think Chris did the revealer tapes about all that as well, and we we'd go to lectures. But um, there were a lot of leaflets rather than books about stuff like that because that. I mean, the thing with books is unless you found them in a second-hand bookshop back in the 70s, I did not have the money to buy them brand new. I just didn't. So, like you said, if if we shared them, it was good. But um, I don't remember anyone sharing anything with me. <laughs> do you remember much of Reich? Uh, did you, do you think you would enjoy reading him now? I don't know. It's just one of those things that, I mean, everything that he said about, you know, the orgasm and orgone, and energy accumulator has been disproved so yeah you're sort of into it at the time it's fascinating and and it's all good because it's something new you know you want to explore it and then who wouldn't when orgasms are concerned you know yeah (laughs) (laughs) i wonder if he's good on a on a writing level on like a sort of just a craftsman level as a writer I i think so i think it's read him rather than i'd bother reading alistair crowley yeah just because of his mind, I think, and and whereas I think Crowley is is just sort of, sort of uh, self driven, some you know big ego. Do you and Chris share books today? Do you or you know in, in your relationship in general have you guys passed books back and forth, or are your interests quite divergent? They're quite different, but now and again they're you know they're pretty good. But it's funny because he used to read a lot more than I did. And now it's changed completely. He's he's not reading so much and I'm reading all the time. I've got two or three books on the go at any one time. Mm. I just don't seem to be able to get enough. <laughs> it's weird. But um yeah, we do sometimes I'll say, you know, you should read this, it's great, but he's not a, he's not in the mood at the moment to read that. When did you when did you become such a voracious reader again? I think it's when um I was studying for my degree in the nineties. And that was purely by accident because I became ill and we couldn't do any gigs or anything. And I only had the energy for so many hours a day. So, um, yeah, Chris suggested, why don't you do a degree? Which, (laughs) yeah, right, okay. (laughs) So, and I did, and that's when I started reading a lot because I had to, you know, I had to do all my studies. Um, So there was history and women's studies, art in theory and practice, that kind of stuff, philosophy of art. So, yeah, I started getting into it more then. But before that, in the 80s, we were out gigging all the time. There was, Having said that, it was the gigs that introduced me to reading prior to my degree, actually. How so? Because you have this thing in America. It, it's caught on here now, but I only knew it of it in America where you leave books in hotels for people to read. Mm. And someone had left a load um, just outside the lift, the elevator, the one the hotels we were staying in. And um, it was um, The Stand, Stephen King. Oh, cool. 
I thought, that's a really long book. That'll do me for the whole tour. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, it was Stephen King that really got me back into reading for pleasure and for academic reasons. Yeah, That's interesting. So you enjoyed it. Yeah. And then I went on to Clive Barker. Uh-huh. Um, um, so that was, I really loved Weave World. Weave World is um, fantastic, yeah. Yeah, it's it was right up my street at the time, you know. Yeah. Um, and then after that, it was, um, yeah, academic and reading books on Warhol, that kind of stuff. Right. It's so funny, no matter who I talk to for this podcast, Stephen King tends to come up. Really? <laughs> yeah. He's like the universal donor. It's strange, isn't it? Because you, you could sort of pe- think people think, what, Stephen King? And you yeah. Sort of, well, yeah, because it kind of fires your imagination as you read along. I think everyone's got a different image of the things he's describing. Yeah. It, you know, other than when they sort of like do it as a film, which is a bit of a drag, but I prefer the book. I do as well. I don't think there's really been a successful Stephen King film adaptation. No, definitely not. Do you like much horror fiction other than those two guys? Have you ever read like weird weird horror? No, no. And I, I'm not into science fiction either. That's a big thing for Chris. He loves sci-fi and I can't stand it. Oh, okay. I like things that are kind of grounded. I don't I don't mind um the magic thing because that's that's fantasy and it can be your individual fantasy. It you know, a good author I think leaves room for you to do that to bring yourself into the book. But with sci-fi, I, I just keep reading it and thinking, that's just not possible. You know, <laughs> it's just like, give me something I can get hold of and run with, you know? Yeah, sure. Do you like poetry? I love really good poetry. Yeah, like who? Oh, I couldn't tell you. I, I mean, when I did my studies, my women's studies, there were some poems in there. And I studied Shakespeare for a while. I mean, Shakespeare is amazing. Mm-hmm. I I had a whole sort of module of my degree on Shakespeare, whether you call him. I, I think he's a poet. And it's incredible when you sort of analyse uh, what, what he did. But other than that, I, there's um, the use of words and very few words to do something is is a skill that I don't think I could ever acquire. So I really respect and admire that, um, people's use of words. And, and the way that they bring them together and they create a world on a page in just like very few lines. What about lyrics? I think it's the same with lyrics, but not quite the same because you have music, which is an emotional trigger for certain things. And that's been woven into the lyrics. So it, it's not quite as free as the the written poetry. Right, right. But I, I do regard poetry, lyrics as being poetry as well. Me too. Is there a lyricist who comes to mind for you as a favourite? I think for the skill of weaving in um, very emotional and, um, yeah, emotional and political and interesting lyrics um, is John Grant. He um, The way he uses words and he, he brings large words and breaks them up in into the melody in such a way that I could never do. And that's something I admire as well. Mm. The way way good good musicians and lyricists use words almost like musical notes. Mm -hmm. And I really admire that. I like the way that lyrics and words can be kind of percussive as well as as well as musical. 
Absolutely, yeah. I mean, words are just, I mean, once you open your mouth (laughs) and the lyrics come out, that's a sound. Yeah. And you use it with the, the other sounds and the music that you're creating, yeah. Uh, I'm going to move ahead to uh, Marjorie now. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Was she fascinating? Uh, yeah. <laughs> the way you describe her sort of wailing while she prays made me think of her as kind of a performer. Absolutely, yeah. And it was almost like she, she, took, her, she took her act on tour by, by, by going on, you know, around the world yeah. and doing this. She did. She went on tour. <laughs> <laughs> How did you first find her? How did you discover her? I am um, the the, ta- the nearest town to where I live because I live in a village um, is where she was born, and it's only five miles away. So I'm more or less in there every day, like pre-pandemic and post. Um, and I'd I'd heard of her, but I didn't really click what she was about because I'm not religious or anything. And the church where she prayed is the huge a huge church in that town. Mm. and I you know passed it so many times and and I just happened to be in a as I go to second-hand shops charity shops or thrift stores as you call them sure and see what see what's around and on the bookshelf or any kind of oddities and there was a book there that said um uh the mad woman of God you know Marjorie Kemp and I thought and they and it said her and I thought I read the back and it said she was born in Kings Lynn I thought this is weird why haven't I you know picked up on her before yeah and um so i bought it it was only a small paperback and it was a, a translation of her book and um i took it home i started reading the first page and i thought god well, this is just so complicated <laughs> because <laughs> i don't know it was really tough going getting through her book i can't tell you how tough it was because it's not chronological. So she comes in with all these different things that she's done. And then later on, things that she's done way before the first page. Yeah. So yeah, I read it. Oh, you did? You know what I mean then? I and do. And it's full of this religious speak, which I don't have any affinity with whatsoever. So it was hard for me to get into it. But once I kind of skipped over that side of it and just looked at, at Marjorie as this woman in the 15th century and what she was born into and what she believed in and what she, the only things that she had at her disposal to get through life. Mm-hmm. And then I could get through this book and start investigating what happened when and in what sequence things happened for her to make sense of why she did things, when she did them and how she did them. How did you find it? It was it was a bit of a slog, yeah. yeah it was yeah. it was a little tough. The language is very thick, mm. um, but I found it. Um, I really like the way she refers to herself in the third person. Yeah. Mm. So that that was kind of that carried through for me as a, a sort of a device that kept me amused and interested. Um, I also found it sort of moving to think about her living her daily life. Yeah, I know. I mean, the, I mean, when you, of course you've read the book, you know what she had to go through to get the book written in the end and what she went through to create those stories in her book and what she left out because of for safety so that she didn't get you know burned at the stake right and those those issues are really fascinating for me to un- unpack her book 
in terms of the times that she lived in and to understand it in relation to that. That was what drove me forward and and I became quite obsessed with her in the end. <laughs> yeah. Did you have to do much more reading? Did you find, you know, secondary and primary sources to read in your research? Absolutely, yeah. I think I got about eight books on medieval <laughs> medieval Britain. Oh wow. For Christmas um the other the other year. So yeah, I waded through those because I wanted to know what the streets were like that she was walking down, what kind of shoes they wore. Right. Because it was all important to the struggle that she had, you know, the, the clothes that she she chose to wear at the beginning and then she renounced all that and went into very simple clothes and white, trying to what what wearing white meant to people in those times. So I had to have an understanding of of um of where she was placed and what she faced, basically. Right. And women in general, what they, some great books on women in the 15th century and what they were faced with, you know. Is there one that you'd recommend? Oh, gosh. I've not got them here, but. No. They're all packed away. Okay. But yeah, there's, there's some great, there's some great books on that. I can send you some if you want and you can slot it in. I'd love that. Yeah, I can put it into yeah. the outro um, of the yeah. episode. Yeah, that would yeah. be fantastic. Thank you. There's one that always stuck in my mind, The Medieval Vagina, that was really good. <laughs> that's a that's a great title. Yeah, that's, that's why it stuck in my head, whereas the others didn't so much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about Marjorie now and, and yeah, the wearing of white. Can you sort of tell our listeners what that signified in her time? Yeah, well, well white was... Um, a symbol of purity and virginity. Um, and and nuns, you think of nuns at that point, where, uh, and saints. And with Marjorie wearing white, she was signaling something she wasn't because she was, she'd been a, a wife and a mother like 14 times over. So she had this white on and it was just like flagging up a, a, she was a liar. But for her, in her mind, she was pure because God had spoken to her. She, she she had visions and she had conversations with Christ and God and the Virgin Mary and other saints. And um, they validated her thoughts of being pure. And she actually got permission not to have sex with her husband again. And there was a thing back in medieval um, times where if you became a widow, you could be perceived as... Um, as not having had sex again, basically. And you were not pure, but um, but you still couldn't wear white. That's the big thing with Marjorie. She wanted to wear white. And um, and she wanted everyone to know that she was, I suppose she felt that she was chosen. She would go and be by God's side, and that was what she believed in. So she flagged it up, and she went, like you said, went around the world, touring the world, performing. Performing in terms of just for people who haven't read about her yet, um, her 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 form of worship was very performative. It was, but she didn't see it like that because she was more or less, I suppose, she was in a kind of trance state. People thought that, although they didn't know what epilepsy was then, they thought that she was possessed, I suppose, um, because she would sort of flail around. She would go purple in the face and she would, uh, her arms... Um, would be flying about all over the place and her legs and she'd be on the floor and wailing at the top of her voice 
and and screaming and there was this there was this movement there um called effective piety where people kind of relive the tortures and the traumas of Christ on the cross and basically that was what she was um that's what she was going through yeah to see that in the middle of a church when you've gone for a quiet prayer is quite something that was the state she would get in when she was connecting with God and trying to connect with God her prayers would be so intense that she'd go into another state do you think she was afflicted with what what we might call now any sort of mental illness I don't think she was no 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 because the thing is with her is that she would like I said this effective piety was encouraged by some of the monks the Franciscan monks and she had a lot to do with them they encouraged her so um and then she would go and I mean if she had a um psychological problem there's no way she could have defended herself in front of the archbishops and the mayors when they accused her of heresy there's no way she could have done that she was too savvy you know yeah did reading about her and learning about her give you any new insights into spirituality for yourself i think it sort of um the thing with marjorie with in that respect is that i always saw her as finding her inner self and being dedicated to that even though it was through god so and i think we're all capable of doing that um some of us need god and some of us don't i'm someone who doesn't marjorie was someone who did because that's all that they had then it was pre-enlightenment no one knew about science or what diseases were or anything like that they thought it was god's condemnation mm-hmm so that was her way of, of finding herself. I mean, in terms of that, to go from being a merchant's wife in fancy clothes and being very quite sort of upper class, upper middle class, to then bring yourself down into wearing almost beggar's clothes in the end when she went to Rome mm-hmm. is some is is quite a, a sacrifice or a determination to be yourself you know, and, and not kind of just do as society tells you, you know, she, um, she, she wasn't interested in doing that. She, she wanted to be with God and live and live as a holy woman during the time she was on earth. Is there something for you in your life uh, that serves the same purpose that God served for Marjorie? In my life? No, I just, I think just self-determination, which I, I think I have in common with Marjorie. That's basically what 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 it was self determination, but she did it through God, and and that was what helped her. That's what gave her strength. It sounds very serious, this, doesn't it? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I suppose it is it's serious. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but then there's Delia, mm-hmm. another self determined woman. Yeah, yeah, very sure. much so. Is that is that sort of the main common thread that you find between the two of them? Oh yes, yeah. I mean, there there were other things like as you know, as you go through the book, you can you you've read it. But um, Castelia had she was uh, born into Catholicism like Marjorie. I wasn't. Um, I was Church of England, but soon gave that up uh, as a child, actually. Yeah. But and Delia gave up Catholicism as well. It was interesting how much religion did. Um, did influence both their lives, actually, whereas it didn't me. 
How did religion influence Delia as she, as she, when she was older, after she moved beyond it? Do you think it informed the way that she approached life in other ways? Yeah, I think it made her um, appreciate the freedom of a rule book that she had to adhere to. Mm. Um, once she left that behind, I think um, I think she it, it was just wonderful for her. You know, she could explore the world in a different way, and um, and her sexual freedom as well. Whereas, you know, she didn't have to think about. Um, getting pregnant that kind of thing because they had um birth control by then which at Delia's time birth control wouldn't have been allowed I don't think right in a Catholic family I know that you know she had um birth control device that I, I, I won't give it away because it's a little story in the book but yeah she still remembers sort of um right into 1980 or so she still refers to Catholicism you know and it did help her in her work because you know, the BBC, when she was working on things to do with religion, I'm sure that informed the kind of music she did because she appreciated the music around the ceremonies and the rituals and the uh, services in her Catholic church that she went to, for sure. You know, the frequencies, the melodies, the beautiful harmonies, they all sort of, I think, informed her music. I think they do everyone. They do with me as well. I'm not religious, but... I absolutely adore Passion Tide and beautiful choirs. I mean, they're they're composed to trigger those wonderful emotions in you, you know. Yeah, yeah, they 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 can really impart a sense of joy or awe. Yeah, and just a sense of being, that wonderful fullness of being. Just as you read about the sort of world that Marjorie lived in, um, did you read about the secondary books about the world that Delia lived in? Well, I lived in it, so I didn't need to. You didn't need to. (laughs) I I did. I did, um, yeah, a lot of research into the um, people that Delia was with and the BBC, obviously. I did a lot of research into the BBC at the time that she was there, before she got there, and the forming of the Radiophonic Workshop as well. Right. So, um. Yeah, but as far as what she went through, she was like, was she like 12, 14 years older than I was? But, I mean, the kind of um, liberation and all that thing that went on at the time in the 60s was she was going through it like I was because it, it happened in the 60s, you know. Yeah. So, but she just happened to be older than me at that point. So it was, I was, I suppose... As a teenager, finding that um, sexual liberation and looking at alternative lifestyles was very different to when she did it as someone in their 20s. You have a different kind of pre-experience to that. And I would think that the freedom it gave her must have felt fantastic and, and bigger than it did to me because I hadn't been held back as much as she had. I think that the 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 tragedy of her is that she was an alcoholic, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure, and addicted to snuff. To snuff, yeah, of all things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was tragic, but I don't think it was tragic to her. It was just her life, and she chose it. I don't want to feel sorry for Delia because she was a very strong person, and she must have been to get through what she went through. But I don't think of her as a tragic figure. I think a tragic figure for me would be. Um, 
John Balance from Coyle. How so? Because he was an alcoholic and and he died far too young because of it. Whereas with Delia, you know, she was a functioning alcoholic and she had a a really good focus on life. She didn't succumb to it as a as an addiction in itself, and she didn't give up on life. Do you have a personal favorite piece of music by her? I think Blue Veil and Golden Sands is my um, favorite. Yeah, just just by how she composed it, the process, you know, the process that she went through to get it. How did it work? Was that one that used a lot of tape loops? Always tape loops with Delia. <laughs> I just, um, yeah, the, the image of her in a room surrounded by tape loops is just so beautiful to me. I know, and just totally focused on it. But no, just the fact that she used her voice um, and the way that um, she recorded the frequencies on the Kulikon and and then just created this wonderful other world like a mirage in the in the desert, you know. And 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 for her to actually use those sources to to um, give voice to the tribe going through the desert is is just amazing. She didn't use any recognizable sounds. She didn't use violins, pianos, all those other things that people might use now. She created, you know, bespoke sounds for the feelings it gave her when she could see them, and also for the experience of the tribe that were going through there. It was definitely, you know, with the sound, the hooves that she made, the sounds of the hooves um, with her voice. It, it's just, yeah, she just imparts herself into everything she did, for sure. Yeah. There's something more personal in her soundtracking than some other people who do the same work. I think so, yeah. And and because because it was, it, it took so long. And that was her, her one of her... It's not even a failing. That was one of the things that was went against her was that she she needed time to get these wonderful pieces of music and to the point of what she regarded as perfection. Forgive me if this question is too woo-woo or new agey or something like that, but <laughs> I wondered, having spent so much time with these two women, did you ever dream about them? Yeah, of course I did. Yeah, they were they were, <laughs> and I'd go to bed with books piled next to me, you know, right? And because I'd be I'd be working all day on. I found that I had to do one person first, and then make notes where the other person or I in, intersected with their lives. Mm. So I had to get, like I said earlier, I had to get Marjorie chronological, so I knew where she came into the picture with me and Marjorie and me and Delia. And um, and I had to do the same with Delia. So I would go to bed and I'd, what, if I'd been writing about Delia, I'd be sort of dreaming about different things that I'd been writing about. And the same with Marjorie. But it wasn't necessarily, I wasn't necessarily in um, medieval England or in the radiophonic workshop. I was just like in conversation or something. Wow, yeah. Almost like you were channeling them with your energy of writing about them. Yeah, it was a 24-7 experience. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. How that how does your creative process differ and how might it parallel when you're writing uh, a book versus when you're writing music? Oh, it's totally different. Totally different. Yeah, totally different. Um, because when I'm writing music, it's all about emotion. 
and how that emotion feeds me from the sounds I'm working with and then my reaction to those sounds then feeds back into the music it's sort of um, a circular thing Mm. whereas with writing it I'm trying to get across particular points about people at the same time as as again dealing with emotion but it's very different it especially with this book it had to be for me it had to be fact-based right so all the research I did about Delia and Marjorie was kind of like cross-referenced time and time again and I also had um, correspondence with two fabulous academics um, who have researched Marjorie and are experts on Marjorie so that was really important to me uh, Susan Maddock and um, Anthony Bale mm. they're both wonderful and and what was good about them was because they're still researching her actually um, I didn't want to encroach on what they were discovering and and they didn't want to feed me information. They, it, it was wonderful because they wanted me to find Marjorie myself. Yeah. And which is exactly what I wanted to do. But at the same time, I wanted to go back to them and say, am I being totally unrealistic in terms of medieval England by saying this about Marjorie? And then they would just tell me yes or no. And I think it was nine times out of ten, it was, yes, that's the right track. And that's all I wanted from them. I didn't want information or their interpretation of her. And they were wonderful in that respect. It sounds like a great working relationship, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Was one of your books more difficult to write than the other? What, Art, Sex, Music and This? Yeah. I think this one was more difficult because I was writing about two people I'd never met. (laughs) So, and I had to um, investigate their lives and see, you know, what they did when and why and how, and then relate it to things that um, the core um, themes that I was working with merged just by finding out what they did, you know. Was there more sort of, oh, not more, but a different sort of emotional investment in art, sex, music than in Resisters? Yes, there was. It was, yeah, it was definitely more art, sex, music was more, yeah, emotionally impactive, for sure, because I, I'll be going through letters from my mother who died, oh, God, um, 20, 30 years ago, and I was estranged from her anyway since I was 17. So to read the letters she'd written me after I'd left home was very emotional. But I had to go through those to, you know, to give an idea of what what my life was like back then and all the other things that I experienced as well. So, yeah, it was much more of an emotional thing doing art, sex, music. Do you have a daily practice when you're writing a book? Is there sort of a schedule you adhere to or is it more catch as catch can? Authors in general, I don't know what they do. But for me, when I work on something, that especially on a book, because I have to get the right words, I have to get the right feel and the right rhythm on the page. And when it works, I have to keep going. Mm. So there is no like, oh, I'll go off and go off to the shops and pick this up when I get back. It doesn't work like that. Music's the same, funnily enough. While the magic is flowing, you've got to stay with it. But as far as having the discipline, I would, I would work from having breakfast, break for lunch, go straight back until the evening dinner every day 
Wow. I would only break off when I'd reach a certain point where I was going on to a different section. And then I would go, let's go go out and let's go and do something. Let's visit family. Let's have friends around. Because then I knew that I had a, a gap where I could rest my rest my brain and everything. And at the same time, I knew that I wouldn't have to kind of rejoin something and pick up yeah. where I'd left off. It, it would have been impossible, especially with Marjorie. And she was intense going going through Marjorie. Yeah, I imagine that that thread would be hard to to find the energy for again once you had abandoned it, if you, or if you had abandoned it. Yeah, it was it was a case of you know, Christmas is coming up. I better get Delia finished <laughs> so, that, <laughs> so that I can enjoy Christmas, and then after Christmas I'll go on to Marjorie. It was that kind of thing, but yeah, it was it was every day other than going to you know obviously living like doctor's appointments, dentists, that kind of stuff. Do you have ideas for new books? Ah, oh, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet? Too soon? Oh, yes. Too soon. <laughs> Far too soon. Well, I hope that you will write more. I, I love your writing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I want to torture myself. I might do it again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Shifting gears a bit, was there writing that inspired or went along with or paralleled somehow your work in the sex industry? What way? Things that you were reading during that time or things that felt like they were communicating similar messages to what you were trying to do with your work there? No, no. I felt very much out on a limb on my own in those days. Mm. Yeah. Even though I knew other female artists in London they weren't doing the same thing as me, and I didn't really talk about it to them either. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it was a time that I was I was doing throbbing gristle, and I was doing you know into numerology that kind of stuff. So yeah, my my world was very full at that point. It wasn't just about pornography or the sex industry. There was so much else going on. Right, all at the same time. Yeah, yeah. There's this really cool book. Um, that I hope our listeners will try to find called the Cosi Complex. Oh yes, yeah. And that has um, full of writing by different people that's sort of inspired by your work. D- do you remember how that project started? Yeah, um, Marie Fusco. Um, she she's um, I think she's a professor now. Hmm. Creative writing, wonderful, wonderful woman. Um, and she came to me. She'd done a small imprint of her own. Um, called the happy hypocrite and she was doing one on um, nomenclature and about naming and she asked she interviewed me for it about my name cozy mm-hmm. um, she was the one where she came cozy can we take cozy as a use it as a verb a noun and a verb rather than as a name and we discussed it in this and we talked about swearing and all kinds of things how we use language and naming and after that she she proposed cozy complex to me Hmm. and um, to use mine and to you and the whole thing with people that uh, contributed to cozy complex was to use my name in that way so and that's how it came about and different people did performances and readings and um there was gigs there was music and and this wonderful book that she put together as well. Yeah. And it it was such a a beautiful evening. I mean, that day it was days. What am I talking about? It wasn't just the evening. 
it was the whole project was just um you know when you get a project where you think that's just perfect you couldn't actually add anything else to it yeah it's of its own in in the right time in the right place and with the right people and that's what marie did for me which was uh, absolutely wonderful yeah I particularly like the pieces, the work by uh, Chris Kraus in the book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wonderful, Fantastic. wonderful Chris Kraus. <laughs> I wanted to ask you if what, what Brian Geisen was like and whether you still read his work and if you think that it's worth reading today. Yes, I do. I do think it's worth reading. It's such uh, when I, I When I met him, he was such a... The, I'll, go, I'll go kind of hippie-ish now. The aura from him was really wonderful. Mm. And um, and I think yeah, for sure. Rather than Burroughs or anyone, I'm Geising, Yeah, for sure. What about what about his work? Do you do you like? I just like the honesty of it. Uh huh. There's there's no kind of a, I don't I don't see an agenda in him as 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 I would with Burroughs or anyone else like that. And yeah, it's the honesty with it. I think and um coming from what I, I sensed as a beautiful person. There are a couple of references in art, sex, music to ghosts, and I was wondering if you do believe in ghosts. It's weird, because I... I, th- I believe in in the fact that you can sense things. Mm. And I have this thing, and, and people probably think I'm crazy, because I don't believe in sci-fi or anything, and I don't believe in god or anything like that but i do we are little little balls of energy little chemical balls of energy and i do believe that um i have a belief then or i like to think that when we go some of that is residual mm-hmm. and i think we pick up on that and that's not necessarily a ghost like in a you know in a white sort of i don't know hood or anything like that uh-huh um, but I, I like to think that that residual energy is around still and, and you sense it. That's why when people say to me when when th- when they've lost people or they've lost pets or anything and and they suddenly go to sort of talk to them, they're not there just because they can feel it. They said, I felt that they were there. Yeah. And, and I think that's what it is. It, it's, and it might just be that you have that memory of connection and it's a sort of like um, – uh, just that you can, it, it's built in and you've done it and it's a reflex that they're always there. So you're sort of subconsciously looking for them, you know. I don't know, but that's, I don't believe in ghost ghosts, no. No. I believe in atmospheres being really scary, really fucking scary for sure. You know, like that Robin Hood, uh, Robin Hood Mill that we were in to do the um, the video with John Lacey. That was really scary. And and you kind of think because of horror films and horror stories and ghost stories that they're going to be a ghosts around, but um, no, I, I don't believe in anything like that. Imagination's amazing, and your your sensitivity to vibrations is also amazing, and I think that's what it's founded on, rather yeah. than something physical. I think that places can also retain energy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but you you know yourself, you must go in somewhere and you think. Oh, I don't like this place. I've got to get out. I don't like it. There's something weird. Yeah. That happens to me. And or I can go somewhere and it feels like home. And it isn't my home, but it feels good. Or just a person. 
you get a vibe off them and, and it's either um, good or bad. Thanks so much to Cozy for her time and generosity. I really, really liked talking with her. Uh, please seek out Resisters. It's out now. And if you haven't read Art, Sex, Music, her memoir, definitely grab that too. Oh, and P.S. Cozy actually did send some recommendations of books about medieval times for myself and you, our listeners. They are Medieval Body, Life, Death, and Art in the Middle Ages by Jack Hartnell. Medieval Medicine, It's Mysteries and Science by Tony Mount and The Time Traveler's Guide to Medieval England by Ian Mortimer. This episode was recorded by me from my home in Los Angeles while Cozy was at hers in a small village in England. It was post-produced and edited by Justin Geller in Philadelphia and facilitated by Lars Kreslins, also in Philadelphia. You can find more Apology stuff at apologymagazine.com or on Instagram at apology underscore zine. Thanks for listening. See you next time.